Hare Krishna. Uh, welcome to our Sunday class. October 13th, still 2019, somehow or other. No year change yet. And uh, of course, I'm in San Diego, California. So today is the first day also of the Damodar month. And so I thought in honor of Damodar, I would before the class. Um, I would just sing one time through quickly the Damodar prayer. And then we'll go to the Bhagavatam. So here we go. <clears throat> you can sing along at home if you like. <laughs> I can't hear you, but. Namami Sharam Sachirananda Rupam Lasat Kundalango Kule Brajamanam Jashodabi Yolukala Dhavamanam Param Rishtamatyanta Tojutya Gopya Rudanta Muhur Netra Yugmam Rajantam Karam Boja Yugmena Satanka Netram Muhuksasa Kampatri Rekanka Kanta Stita Graivam Damodaram Bhakti Vadam Iti Drekswalila Vir Ananda Kunde Sagosam Nima Jantam Akyapayantam Tadiyeshita Gyeshu Vakta Arjitatam Unak prematastam satavreti vande varang deva moksham namoksavadiva nachanyam rneham varesharapiha idang deva purnata gopalavalam sadame manasya virastam kimanya Idang te mukam vojam atyantani lai, Ritam kuntalai snake garatais jadopia, Muschum bitam vimba ratadaram me, Manasyavirastam, Alang lakshalavai, Namo deva damo darananta vishno, Prasida pravoduka jalavdi magnam. Prapadrishti vrishtati dinam vatanu Grihane shamamagyamediakshi drasya Kuved atma javadha murtyaiva jadbad Tayamojitau bhakti bhajau pratacha Tataprema bhakti sakam ne prayacha Namokshe graho meisti tamo dareha Namaste studamne spuradipti dhamne Tadiyo darayata vishasya dhamne Namo radhikayai tadiyo priyayai Namo nantalilaya devaya tuvyam So, that our song. Now we'll go to the Bhagavatam. Today we are beginning 
with uh, Bhagavatam 1.3.22. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So, verse 1.3.22. Naradevatvam, Naradevatvam apanak sudakarya chikirshaya samudra nigraha dini chakra viryanya tatparam. So, Naradevatvam uh, Apannam, the Lord assumed uh, the state of or the position of Naradeva. Naradeva means literally man god, uh, just like Narasingha means man lion, Nara means man. And the source of all men or the source of all human beings is Narayana. So, Deva, now, to say that the Lord assumed the position of Naradeva. What's interesting here is that we can take it literally that it was God appearing as a human, as a man. I mean, Krishna was not a human man, but he was appearing like someone. Kapata Manusha, the Bhagavatam says in the first chapter, pretending to be a human being. So, uh, but also, uh, Naradeva means uh, a king, sort of God on earth, which is obviously a little extreme for modern democratic sentiments. So, uh, but then again, in, in the term Naradeva, we have to keep in mind that Deva also means uh, what we call in English demigods. What we call demigods. Uh, the Sanskrit, I mean, I mean, the Sanskrit doesn't, I mean, there is a word in, in, there is a word in um, Sanskrit, you could say Ardha Deva, which means a half God or Demi, Demi means like half. So you could say a half God, but the word Deva is used in Sanskrit, simply a God. And um, so Naradeva can simply mean a, a human being, the king, who is uh, functioning as one of the universal managers or as a divine representative of the Supreme God. So it can also be taken in that way when the term is applied to a king, not a deva. But in any case, um, as far as democratic sentiment, just to throw in something here, um, in Poland now, the European Union is disturbed because in Poland, people keep electing these governments who are somewhat right-wing, who apparently the people believe, I won't you know, speculate on the real condition of Poland, but the people believe that the government's doing a reasonably good job, that there's relative prosperity and so on. And the European Union is unhappy because this Polish government is not, appears to be taking powers that normally one should not take in a democratic government. Uh, un, inappropriately controlling the judiciary, in other words, violating kind of the separation of powers. And what's interesting is, as we know, the, the Vedic system was monarchy, and and ultimately, what's happening in the world nowadays is that I also just wanted a little factoid here because I want to talk about kings because Ram Chandra appeared as a perfect king, and so you could say, is that relevant today? Because we don't have kings. So what is the relevance of appearing as a perfect king? Um, 
something else happened actually, which sort of reflects on the current status of democracy. And that is they're having elections right now. They just had elections for president in Tunisia. Uh, the ancient name of Tunisia, if you're a history buff, was Carthage, the, uh, the Carthaginians. Anyway, so what's interesting about this election, because of course they had the Arab Spring and it, I think it even began in Tunisia. So Tunisia, if you look at what's called the Maghreb, the north coast of Africa, which is Muslim, then you have the Saharan Desert. And then below the Sahara, you have sub-Saharan Africa, which is more... Uh, uh, people of, of uh, African or black descent, black descent. And so, but, but north of the Sahara, you have the Maghreb, this Muslim northern coast of, of Africa, which was, of course, part of the Roman Empire. Anyway, so in Tunisia, which is perhaps the most, one of the most progressive Muslim countries, um, only about, I think, 17 or 18% of the people voted. Here they had this big struggle throughout a dictator, had their Arab Spring, finally got democracy, and now an overwhelming majority of people aren't bothering to vote. So what's really going on? What's happening in a lot of places is that, uh, or in China, you have, a, you have a, a dictatorship in China, but people are not, don't seem to be terribly frustrated with that, some people are, of course, is that many times people, just common people, they prefer security, security. They want to be safe. They want to be able to feed their families. They just want to have a peaceful life. And that's more important than what is sometimes perceived as the chaos of democracy, just the uh, very high levels of corruption, which of course also take place in dictatorships and in monarchies. Monarchies, there have been extremely corrupt monarchies in history. But more and more people nowadays, and I'm not saying it's most people, not most people in the West, but a growing number of people, I mean, enough, especially among young people, that uh, some of the older people are kind of alarmed by it, that it's no longer appearing obvious to everyone that democracy is the best form of government. It used to be sort of a given, like, sure, if you have any common sense, if you're not a crazy person, you understand the best form of government's democracy. And, and it seems like an increasing number of people don't exactly see it that way. Because for, for many people, democracy just means corruption, chaos, and or you could say an ignorant mass of people have no idea what's going on uh, electing a corrupt person that just knows how to manipulate ignorant people. That may be kind of a harsh definition, but I think it's, I mean, look at this country. So <clears throat> I say this not because we're about to witness in our lifetime necessarily the collapse of democracy, although it's not impossible, but simply to say that it's not obvious that democracy is a better form of government than monarchy especially the Vedic system, which was constitutional democracy and not absolute democracy, the monarchy, constitutional monarchy, huge difference. In uh, absolute monarchy, which Prabhupada sometimes actually took to be monarchy, he would sometimes say the king can do no wrong. But, that, but in the Vedic system, which was constitutional monarchy, the king absolutely can do wrong. For example, in the Mahabharata, in the Mahabharata, um, 
when the world believes that the Pandavas were assassinated in the house of Lack, the world believes it, and, and people assume that it was the Kurus that did it. It was Duryodhana and his father, Dhritarashtra. They say in, in, in legal affairs, like from the police point of view, that in order to be a serious suspect, someone has to have the motive to do it and the opportunity to do it and the means. There are three things. If someone had a good reason to commit a crime and uh, there was an opportunity to do it and they had the power to do it, then they become a leading suspect. Ever watched your, uh, you know, crime things on TV? So, in the case of the Kurus, obviously, if you imagine you're alive 5,000 years ago and you just heard this tragic news, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the Kennedy assassination times six, because it was Kunti and the five Pandavas who were very much beloved by the people. So there, there have been famous assassinations of, I mean, Germanicus, anyway, that's Roman history. Germanicus was kind of like the John Kennedy of his time and his assassination by the Emperor Tiberius really shocked everyone, but, oh, they couldn't prove it was Tiberius. But anyway, so, um, anyway, in terms of political assassination, no one else in the world really had a very good reason to kill the Pandavas. As far as dying in a fire, that didn't seem plausible because if you read the Mahabharata, uh, it just doesn't happen very much that people die in fires. They knew how to build houses. And uh, anyway, I mean, it's the only case you hear practically, in, unless it's caused on purpose. Like, for example, Krishna burned up the city of Kashi because they were unusually nasty people. And so Krishna lit the city on fire, didn't kill everybody, but he expressed his displeasure with them. So, but in terms of accidental, like houses accidentally burning down, you really don't hear about that. And of course, the house of Lack, where the Pandavas lived, was built to be a fire trap. It was, which you just heard and the other Pandavas noticed as soon as they got there, that, wow, this place is built to burn down. So they knew what was going on if you do had told them. But, um, but in terms of, imagine you're alive back then, you're alive 5,000 years ago, you've heard this terrible news, and who in the world has a motive? Except the Kurus, and they have an obvious motive, because everybody knows they want to steal the kingdom from the Pandavas. And uh, another point is uh, Varnavata, where this happened, is within the Kuru Empire. So it's not that some other pe like people from some other kingdom are going to send spies. They have no reason to do that. So the Kurus had the motive. It was the Kurus who had the motive to do it. And uh, they had the means to do it because they controlled a whole dynasty. They had thousands of spies. They could basically do whatever they wanted. So, um, I forgot why I brought that up originally. Anyway, I just got involved in Mahabharata there. <clears throat> so, anyway, uh, uh, monarchies could be corrupt. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So what was interesting here is that when the Pandavas were killed, or, or I'm sorry, they weren't killed, when, when people thought the Pandavas had been assassinated, so you're alive 5,000 years ago, you believe the Pandavas are gone. You believe they've actually been assassinated. 
and you're shocked. So what do the people do? They go out into the middle of the imperial capital, Hassanapur, and they and they just insult and and uh, and blast the king, uh, Duryodhana, and also Dhritarashtra. They criticize him. So there was freedom of speech. Vedic, I mean, and, and the king could do wrong. So Prabhupada was quoting a you know a British proverb or something, but but the actual political system was constitutional monarchy. And how do, how does Dhritarashtra, how do Dhritarashtra and Duryodhana react to this where the people are, are really just publicly slandering them, not slandering them, but, but criticizing them, accusing them. Do they say, okay, let's kill them, like in you know some European, ancient European history, okay, someone criticized the king or the emperor, so you kill them. No. The Kurus begin to say that we have to be more careful or the people may throw us out of office. In other words, there's no hint that the king could attack or punish or kill people for criticizing the government. You were free to criticize the government. And there are other cases, even when, uh, when the Pandavas were ruling, uh, I believe it was Indraprastha, and uh, the Brahmin kept losing his sons, and he criticizes the government. So, um, so this was constitutional monarchy. This was a constitutional monarchy, which is not absolute monarchy. The king was not above the law. And, and, and so that's, for example, when uh, Vichitravirya, Chitrangada and Vichitravirya, the two sons of uh, Santanu, died at a very young age, and there was no Kuru monarch, and the, the, the Kuru dynasty was thrown into a complete crisis. At that point, um, the Mahabharata says that there was all kinds of lawlessness. You get these warlords who are harassing other countries or seizing Kuru land. And it's very clearly said that, you know, they were breaking the law and they would be punished for it. So that, so the king could do wrong. Or, for example, in the gambling match, when the Kurus uh, insulted Draupadi in the gambling hall and they were given a death sentence. Draupadi cursed them. Draupadi said that you will die for this. She was obviously not happy with their behavior. And Draupadi declared that you will die for this. And Krishna heard her curse, and Krishna declared, I will enforce it. I will enforce Draupadi's curse. And, and so kings could very much do wrong, and they could be killed for doing the wrong thing or thrown out. So uh, anyway, so Lord Rama, this course is a description of the avatar, the incarnation of Lord Rama. And because we live in an age when everybody's supposed to believe what you are, the cliche is that, well, democracy is imperfect, but it's the best system of government we've ever had. You ever heard that one? What's very interesting is the people that, the people that say that have one thing in common. They've never studied world history. Anyway, just an interesting note. So it's interesting, someone who really has not studied world history knows what the best system in history is. So, um, so that's Lord Rama. So monarchy, again, it's not obvious to many people today that democracy is the best system. If you look at America, it's just, it's just 
I mean, who could say that this is the best way to govern a country? The level of corruption uh, starting in the White House and Congress, the tax breaks given to the rich, the richest people, you know, pay the least taxes. So, so who can say, because we live in a capitalist age when money is power, and therefore America more and more looks like a plutocracy. A plutocracy means ruled by the rich. And if you look at other countries, third world countries that are so-called democracies, I mean, the level of corruption is staggering. And so to say that this is the best system of government we've ever had, uh, there's a discussion to be had there. So we'll go to the next point, uh, verse, verse 23, which says, a cone of shade, which means in the 19th. They have an interesting way of saying, I mean, there's different ways you can say 19 in Sanskrit. You can say Navadasha, but here's sort of poetically, Ekona Vingsha, which means 20 minus one. That's literally what it means. Vingsha means 20, Una means minus, and Eka means one. So 20 minus one, so, which means in the 19th. Ekona Vingsha in the 19th, Vingshatime, and in the 20th, Vrishnishu Prabhya Janmani, taking their births. It's in the dual form. It's a dual. Sanskrit has singular, dual, and plural. So taking their two births in the among the Vrishnis, Vrishnishu Prapya Janmani, Rama Krishna, yes, Rama and Krishna Iti, which means that was that was their names. Rama Krishna Iti uh, means their names were Rama and Krishna, Bhuvo of the earth, Bhagavan, the Lord Aharad Bharam, remove the burden. Bara, in fact, our English word burden or to bear, like to bear a weight, bear a burden, are, of course, in Sanskrit, bara. So, uh, aharat, the Lord removed the burden of the earth. Now, there's something very interesting here for those of you who pay close attention to the Sanskrit verses. Very, there's actually embedded in the grammar of this verse uh, is an extremely important philosophical point, one of our most important philosophical points, which is not stated, but it's just embedded. It's there in the grammar of this verse. So if you can guess what that is, you can win valuable prizes. Okay, I'll tell you. Rama Krishna. So, so the compound word Rama Krishna, which becomes, if you're looking at the verse in your own book, Rama Krishna, the U changed to V, that's just a phonetic adjustment. But the actual word, the compound word is Rama Krishna, which is the dual form. So in other words, the dual form is used to make clear we're not talking about one person named Rama Krishna, thank God. Anyway, so Rama Krishna, two people named Rama and Krishna. So the grammatically, it, it's it must be two people. And yet, these two people are referred to as one person. In other words, as this dual form, as this dual avatar, as Rama and Krishna, the one Lord, removed the earth's burden. And, and, and the importance of this philosophically is that we are monotheists, which means one goddess. There's one God. Balaram is not a different person. Because if Balaram, I mean, Krishna plays these different parts so well. 
like when Krishna is being Balaram, it's, I mean, talk about method acting. You know, when Krishna takes the part of Rama, Balaram or Ramchandra or any of his innumerable avatars, uh, he really becomes that person, as they say in Hollywood. He really takes on that person, that identity. And yet, we should not be fooled into thinking that Balaram and Krishna are actually two different people. Because if they were two different people, we would not believe in one God. And that would bother me very much because I was brought up as a monotheist and uh, not as a Trinitarian, by the way. I was brought up as actually an actual monotheist. And, um, and I really believe that's true. I'm convinced there is one God. And so since Balaram is God and Narayan is God and Vishnu is God and a whole bunch of other people are God, and we are monists, uh, they're all Krishna. I mean, you see this very clearly in Krishna Leela. For example, when uh, the gopis were looking for Krishna, Krishna, in order to curb their pride, uh, disappeared from the rasa dance, and then the gopis were madly searching for Krishna, and so he disguised himself as Narayan. In other words, it's not that Narayan is somebody else. Krishna pretended to be Narayan. He assumed his own form as Narayan. But then when the gopis just looked at him, they were suspicious and he couldn't hold the form. It's like, you know, it's almost like if you have a, let's say you're hiding from a good friend or let's say you're hiding from a girlfriend and then, uh, you know, she comes and looks at you and you just like burst out loud. You know, you can't hold your disguise. It's just, you, you know, you, you can't do it because someone is just looking you right in the eye and they know who you really are. And so, so then Krishna again appeared as Krishna. But, but the point is that we are monotheists. There is one God. Krishna expands himself. As I said, Advaitam Achutam Anadi Manantarupam. He has innumerable forms, but he's one. There aren't two gods. Advaita means there are not two supreme gods. There's only one. And that's clear even in the grammar here. Rama, Krishna, Viti, Bhuvo, Bhagavan, singular, so, I mean, as far as describing, talking about Krishna Balaram, we spend our whole lives doing that. So for now, I'm going to go on to the next verse, which is Tatak Kalau. Tatak means thereafter or then. Kalau in the age of Kali, some pravrit, Kalau, some pravritte. Actually, it's a, anyway, it's a genitive absolute grammatically in Sanskrit, which means what you really need to know is it means that when Kali had really appeared, Prabritta means come forth. So when so if you said Kalo Prabritte would mean when Kali has come forth. But if you say Kalo Sam Prabritte, it means when Kali had fully come forth, fully manifested. It was just Kali Yuga was really happening. That's the idea. Tata Kalo Sam Prabritte Samohaya. To, to completely bewilder Sura Dvisham, for, or literally for the complete bewilderment of those who envy the godly or those who envy the gods. And so you have the repetition, the little details in Sanskrit which are intentional, they're not accidental. For example, the prefix sam, S-A-M, which... Uh, 
We still have in English, by the way, in things like sum, the total of something, the sum total, or in through the by way of Greek, S-Y-N, like synthesis, the complete thesis, the synthesis, or symbiotic, which means when different life forms come together. So that's a Sanskrit sung or Sankirtan, literally together chanting. And so Sankirtan, and so we have that prefix here, some uh, prapritte, and so some can mean like together in the sense of completely or fully, everything together, complete. And so when Kali had completely come, arrived, then to completely, for the complete bewilderment of those who envy the godly or God, Buddha Namna, with the name Buddha, Buddha Namna, with the name Buddha, Anjana Sutta, as the son of Anjana, Kikateshu in the geographic region called the Kikatas. It's actually plural. But just like in, in New York and Long Island, they have an area called the Hamptons. And so sometimes you can use the plural to describe a geographic area, even in English. And, uh, or for example, the Americas. Las Americas, which means North and South America. If you mean the whole Western Hemisphere, then you say the Americas, or in Spanish, Las Americas. And so in that way, you can use the plural to indicate a geography, and that's what we have here in Sanskrit, Kikateshu, in the Kikatas. Interesting little detail. Uh, the Lord will, will appear, will come, in the Kikatas, son of Angjana, by the name Buddha, and he comes when Kali has fully, is fully happening and to fully bewilder those who are envious of, of the godly. So that's Buddha. If you want to know what happened to Buddhism in India, at one time it was a very powerful, very, very powerful, successful uh, religion. I mean, it was really big. Buddhists controlled various kingdoms, including Kashmir, by the way. At one time, Kashmir was a Buddhist kingdom. And, uh, but people were just thinking, like, who wants to be nothing? I'd rather be something. It's like, imagine, you're living in India. Imagine 2,000 years ago was about the time that uh, Buddhism really started to be uh, drawn into Vaishnavism. And so imagine you're in India and, and, and let's say some tragedy occurred. Let's say someone you love very much in your family died and India was a free country. And so, you know, Buddhist, you know, Buddhist preacher says, well, the good news is, let's say your mother died. She didn't really exist anyway. So, you know, why worry about something that doesn't, doesn't, isn't even real. But that's not kind of like great, a great example of grief counseling. And then, and then let's say a Vaishnava preacher comes and says, well, your mother worshiped the Lord. Therefore, she has a great life now. And so it's not just that people believe what they want to believe, but within our hearts, we know the truth, that virtue is rewarded, that the soul does go on, that we're not the body. 
And even the Buddhists, it's funny, for people that said there's no self, they were really obsessed with their karma, which is completely contradictory. So there were all kinds of contradictions in Buddhist philosophy because it started out just as, um, it's kind of like happy life for dummies, in the sense that, you know, the four noble truths of Buddhism. I'm not saying the Buddhists were dummies, but it was, it was very simple. The four simple truths were that uh, you're... For you know, you're suffering. You're suffering because you're selfish. Stop being selfish, and you'll stop suffering. Join Buddhism, and you'll stop suffering. You know, live right, right speech, right behavior, right everything. So that was it. And actually, we know from history that many of the early Buddhists believe in a soul, believed in an eternal soul, such as the Pudgala bodies. And that then they came up with this uh, non-self doctrine, which, by the way, Buddha himself never taught everyone. I mean, scholars know that he never actually taught that that there's no self. And but then people just weren't buying it. I mean, at, at first they were successful. One of the main reasons they were successful, actually, was not philosophical. It was social because they opposed the caste system. And so let's say, for example, you were a king. Buddha himself appeared in the Kshatriya order, and he attracted a lot of Kshatriyas, which means you got the whole kingdom at no extra cost. And one of the reasons was that um, there were a lot of kings back then who were just really tired of being bullied by, by Brahmins. You had these corrupt Brahmins who were arrogant and uh, just kind of you know, causing a lot of trouble. So if you became a Buddhist, suddenly you could just uh, give a, you know, particular particular famous mudra to, you know to these corrupt brahmins you know which involves the middle finger anyway you could just tell the brahmins to take a hike and suddenly i mean you had the, you had the same dynamic actually in the protestant reformation where you had a corrupt church that owned half of germany and so if a german prince decided hey i, I think luther is really speaking for god suddenly you became an overnight multimillionaire because, you know, land was money. That was the agrarian age. Land was money. If half the land in your country is owned by the Vatican and you decide to become a, you know, a Protestant, suddenly you're really rich. You have a lot more power. And so there was something like that going on with the spread of Buddhism. It, it actually is analogous to the spread of Protestantism in Europe, at least certain parts of Europe, especially Northern Europe. So, um, but in any case, eventually, it, it, like today, according to scholars, 85% of living Buddhists in the world, 85%, that's almost everybody, are Mahayana Buddhists, which means that they believe in heaven, they believe in a personal savior, like bodhisattvas to come. And so the point is that all that no self, you know, everything is just shunyavad, it's like, it's not like the life of the party. It's not something that you can really base human life on. And Buddhism spread around the world to the extent they just started acting like normal religion. And eventually people thought, well, if we're gonna have a normal religion, and if Buddha is an avatar of Vishnu anyway, then why not just take the original normal religion that actually has a lot more stuff going on for it, like the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita. You know, if we're just going to have a normal religion, why not, you know, why not do that one? 
So that's what happened in India. That's what happened to Buddhism in India. Anyway, uh, so we did several verses today. I hope you feel you got your money's worth. Your time was well spent. So uh, let me look very quickly to see if there's any questions here. If you ask a question, uh, please type in also your credit card number. That was a joke. Um, so, um, looks like no questions. Which means I get the rest of the day off. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. I, I appreciate your uh, showing up for the class. And I hope to see you all next Sunday. Hare Krishna.